The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor. She sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection and she's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. You may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special. To learn more about this radio show and our great guest, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Good evening, Murray. Good evening, Lloyd. Well, you know, talk about great guests. We are so thrilled to have Linda and Jay Foley back. They have been our guests Again. twice, yeah, but they always have something great to say, and they are two of my very favorite people, and they are true experts in identity theft, wonderful, caring, brilliant professionals, and I am thrilled that they're here. I'm just going to, for those people who didn't hear them before, I'm going to do a little bit of a background on them, and then we'll talk to them. Linda Foley is the founder and she, uh, of the Identity Theft Resource Center, and she founded this nonprofit agency with Jay Foley back in 1999, and he is the d- executive director. Linda and Jay have testified before many uh, legislative hearings, and Linda has especially uh, testified in front of the Federal Trade Commission, the Social Security Administration, the California Department of Consumer Affairs, the California Attorney General's ID Theft Task Force, the Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, They've appeared on many shows together, uh, and separately, uh, Linda has been on the Montel Williams Show, The San Diego People, uh, she's been in Biography Magazine, Reader's Digest, and Time Magazine. They have both been quoted many, many times in numerous periodicals across the country. And Jay travels throughout the United States providing training for business, law enforcement, consumers. And he's appeared also before state legislatures, Congress, and the media. They are both incredible people. And in 2004, the Identity Theft Resource Center was the recipient of the Department of Justice's, Justice's Office of Victim of Crime Service. And they, they received that award together, Linda and Jay. And also, Jay will be a um, wonderful recipient of the Channel 10 Leadership Award in San Diego in December 2007. So they are both doing great work. We've been friends. I've been honored to help uh, as on their advisory board. It's such a privilege to be supportive of their, their wonderful organization. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much, Mari. Oh, you guys are terrific. So you both know that I think that the Resource Center does fabulous work, and we've talked about your previous surveys. So we're going to talk about a n- brand-new survey 
that the Identity Theft Resource Center did recently about identity theft. But before we do that, let's let's kind of go backwards for those people who are not aware of your fabulous organization and tell us about the mission of the Identity Theft Resource Center. Jay, why don't yep. you go ahead with that? The Identity Theft Resource Center is a nonprofit organization that basically provides information and assistance to victims of identity theft, guiding them through the the pitfalls of dealing with a situation where somebody's used your personal information and created some form of havoc for you. And I, kn- I know you also do training for law enforcement and for uh, governmental agencies and, and the like, right? Yes, we do. We provide training for businesses in how to look at your business through the eyes of a thief. We train government uh, agencies on how to deal with victims of identity theft, ways to clarify what they are trying to communicate and get the victims on a much faster recovery path than they had before. Right. Linda, you know, um, tell us a bit about how you decided to to found this organization. I I remember we met many years ago when you were going through an ordeal. Tell us about that. Many years ago, you were one of my angels. (laughs) (laughs) You're always one of mine, too. (laughs) Yeah, I was a victim of identity theft and didn't know what to do. There was very little information out there to help victims of identity identity theft in 1997. And you and Beth Givens at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse were one of the two people that I could turn to to find out what am I supposed to do, what's going on, what am I being told, what do, what does this all mean? And you know, Linda, you and I are kind of soul sisters in that we were both victims of identity theft. Why don't you briefly tell what happened to you so people under- know that you really understand this from a gut level. I'm actually privileged also to work with a staff that primarily have been victims of identity theft or survivors of identity theft as well, which I think is one of the strengths of the Identity Theft Resource Center. In my particular case, my employer stole my identity, used it to get a cell phone and credit cards. Unbeknownst to me, I was notified by one of my credit card companies about a change of address, and I hadn't moved. And that's how I first found out about my identity theft case. It took about a year and a half from the time I found out about it until it was finally she was um, sentenced and there was a beginning sense of completion. Yep. And what a betrayal to have somebody you know. And you've done a lot of work in the area of betrayal of, of imposters um, against their victims. But let's talk about this new study that was performed. Can you tell us how this was performed? Yes. What we did was each year since 2003, we have conducted a study called the Identity Theft, the Aftermath. And we have been watching it, looking for changes in patterns and trends in terms of victimization. Now, these are actual victims that have contacted us that we have worked with. This is not meant to be a census or population study. This is using actual victims that we have confirmed have had an identity theft issue in their lives, and these are their actual responses to the questions. So it's reflective of the group of victims that the Identity Theft Resources Resource Center works with, which may not be indicative of the entire victim population. No, it's but just it's what it, we yeah. know. But it's it's a first of all, you get to know these people really well. So I think this is at least a true study of what they're saying. 
you know, Correct. that. Yeah. So what did you find out about how imposters obtained the information of those victims? We've seen a significant increase in the theft via the Internet, lost and stolen wallets, um, theft in the workplace and home and car robberies. And the home and car robberies were often laptops that were taken from the workplace that contained identifying information that were then stolen. Unfortunately, the information was not encrypted or protected in such a way that it was unreadable to the average person. That is a good thing to think about when you have employees at your business, that you should be making them encrypt anything that they have, whether it's the USB ports, that the USB plugs that they take, or their um, laptops, or their Palm Pilots, or anything that they have sensitive information. That's really important from what you're saying. So who are the imposters? Did you find out, did any of those people find out who their imposters were and what they were like? Well, as you know, most people don't know who their imposters are. We have a unique group of victims who a lot of them, because of the extent of the case, in some cases, these cases have been going on for quite a bit of time, have been able to find out some facts about their imposters. And they know that they have experienced financial difficulties. They may have addictions, especially drug addictions. They've committed identity theft against other family members. We're also seeing a trend where rather than committing other types of crimes, they're sticking just to identity theft, which if you think about it makes sense because financial identity theft would be far more lucrative than robbing a convenience store. And not only that, you're not going to be put away for as long, are you? You can get out sooner and, and just start to repeat doing all the, the, you know, getting that money back. It is definitely a low-risk, low-penalty crime. Right. So um, tell us then, so ha- you've been really very interested in, and done a lot of research on child identity theft. Did you learn anything in this survey, anything new about child identity theft? <clears throat> Unfortunately, the responses we're seeing are very similar to those we've seen in previous years. Um, Victims are reported a combined total of 51% actually, that the family is torn, is in denial, or will actually turn against the victim if action is taken against the perpetrator. So what what is the 59% you mean of the the people who have uh, children that uh, the family has experienced identity theft of the child, 59% do not want the the family to take this to law enforcement. Is that what you're saying? I'm not quite yeah, sure. 51%, if it's a family identity theft case, uh-huh. and this victim is old enough to want to take some action, right? 51% of them are discouraged from taking any action against the person who is their perpetrator. And, and who are you finding is the perpetrator? Is it um, a foster parent? Is it a, a step-parent? Who, who is it? All of the above. Mm. One or both parents, a step-parent, a guardian. Jay, you were involved with the study um, looking at foster parent situations. Yeah, so, so it even occurs with foster parent. How about ex-spouses? Ex-spouses seem to be a, uh, a very popular target target environment. We're seeing more cases come in on a daily basis where the divorce occurred several years ago, but now the, the former spouse is attacking, again, through identity theft to cause hate and discontent in the life of the 
victim. Right. They're either opening up an accounts or they're sending emails or trying to get revenge, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's um you know and and they have access, don't they? If you've been married to someone, you know their social security number if you've filed a joint tax return together. And so you have access to all that sensitive information. It's very easy to do. Yes, it is. It's incredibly easy to do. In fact, it was interesting and we have to recheck this one statistic, but it appears that the majority of the identity theft crimes that are committed against children happened between birth and five years of age. Wow. Now, this this totally ruins their credit if they don't find out about it. I mean, it'll ruin it. So when they do want to get a car or, you know, get some uh, loans for college or something, it's really going to inf- interfere with that. They'll have destroyed credit. Now, and they often don't find out about it till they reach the age of 18. Right. So if one of the things that that you and I have talked about in the past is that if a child is under five, that would be the time to change their social security number as soon as you find out. Assuming the perpetrator is not a family member or someone who would need that social security number, such as an ex-spouse who is use, has to pay child arrears or child support payments. Uh-huh. So that does not help the situation. Thankfully, we have a credit freeze program. Right. which we may be able to utilize instead until that child reaches 18. You know, a lot of times people ask me, what can I do if my child is a victim of identity theft? And I know you and I actually wrote a fact sheet together, but I would like you to explain this because I think people don't really know. So could you tell us if, if you find out that your child is a victim of identity theft, how should they deal with the credit bureaus? Your credit report, which is what the credit bureaus produce for us, is a kind of financial report card. If you're under the age of 18, you should not have a credit report. The fact that their credit report exists indicates there is a problem. Right. So that's our first step. At that point, we then have to get hold of that credit report, which means writing the credit reporting agencies and finding out what cause that report to begin, and then going backwards from there and trying to figure out who the perpetrator might be. And how about, how receptive are the credit bureaus to allowing parents in a proactive way, for example, in California, we can use a security freeze as a consumer to prevent um, identity theft. Are, Are the credit bureaus receptive to us writing to them and putting a freeze on a child's credit report even before it is created? They're getting more receptive to that particular approach. The uh, credit bureaus have actually become good in, in one regard. If a parent shows the proper proof of custody, parentship, guardianship, and sends that information into the credit bureaus, with the appropriate documentation, they will respond with, is there a credit report, what the credit report contains, and at the same time, they will flag that credit report so that anybody who even takes a look at it will realize this is a minor that they're dealing with. 
Right. I'm wondering if, if, if we can actually create a credit freeze. People say, I'm so worried about child identity theft, and nothing has been stolen, but I'm just worried that my ex-spouse might do it or somebody else who's had access to his information or somebody at the hospital might do it. Do you think they would be receptive to uh, allowing a credit freeze when the child has not even created a credit profile yet? Actually, I think they're becoming more along, they're working more along those lines. Experian just recently announced that they were going to do a child identity theft package where you could sign up and they would monitor their credit reports and credit requests and requests for credit reports for your child's social security number. Mm. And if it pops up, then they would notify you and they would assist you in cleaning, cleaning it up. Oh. That's we've a good actu- idea. Yeah. We've actually proposed to Congress that what they do instead is create a, what we call the 1710 database. It would take every child in the United States under the age of 17 years and 10 months, put their name, their Social Security number, the month and year of their birth into a data file that's updated every two weeks and sent over to the three credit reporting agencies all 50 DMVs and certain select companies monitored by the Federal Trade Commission that do pre-screening of applications for credit. Uh-huh. So that if a application for credit came in and the social security number is in a valid range, the the credit reporting agency is looking and goes, well, I don't have a credit report on file. They switch back to this 1710 database file and say, gee, Mr. Business, why are you trying to open up an account with an 8-year-old? Right, right. We believe in the long run that would that would reduce the fraud level that we're seeing across the United States by a good 10 to 12 percent. Yeah, I think it would really be helpful for the credit bureaus to have it and obviously the Social Security Administration because they, they also are involved in this. And if somebody's trying to get a job using your child's name, because I've had a lot of victims call me recently that their children's name was used for a job and then they got tax bills <laughs> for like eight-year-olds. So I think that might be helpful. I think the, the one issue that you'd have to deal with is who else would have access and how would they limit that access? That would be my fear of, you know, another database to have another data breach. That's all we need. Well, the interesting thing about this particular file is that by sending it out to the credit reporting agencies and to the DMVs, that's pretty much going to limit the ability of the thief to use it for the purposes of credit or for getting a driver's license. The fact of the matter is Congress has already put into place a a program where employers are going to have to check with Social Security Administration on every new hire to verify that the name and social security number match, right? Uh-huh. which will help cut down on the amount of employment fraud, because SSA would be using that same data to come back and go, uh, you drive a, you, you own a trucking company. How is it that you're employing a five-year-old? Exactly, exactly. Well, Jay the, and Linda, the only thing I'd ask is that when you, when you, is this bill already written up? If you have a bill written up, just make sure that they encrypt that database. <laughs> 
so that no one can steal it. That that would be my concern. You know, um, if you're dealing with that, that with us, that goes without saying. Right. We're speaking with Linda Foley, who is the founder of the Identity Theft Resource Center, and Jay Foley, who is the direct executive director of the Identity Theft Resource Center. They're down in San Diego. It's a nonprofit, and I just want to give the website a, several times today. It's idtheftcenter.org, a fabulous website. Let's get back to the survey now. And what did you find in your newest survey about the involvement of the Internet in identity theft? We've seen significant changes um, as far as the use of the Internet. Um, it went from 18% to 20 to 28% in 2006 as far as the use of the Internet to, cre- to get credit cards, or to commit scams. Uh-huh. And this is consistent with other studies done by other cybercrime organizations. So did you, did you learn anything about the, how your victims, um, res- how, let me start that again. What about this, the credit reporting bureaus and the collection agencies and the credit issuers? Did you find out anything about how they have been responsive or non-responsive to your victims? Yes. Um, actually, with the credit reporting agencies, we've seen a little more responsiveness, not a lot. The collection agencies, the credit issuers, and the police have pretty much remained the same over the last few years. We're still seeing a lot of frustration as far as people not being able to get police reports, to be taken seriously as a victim, to be able to clear records with credit issuers. Um, It's still a big frustration as far as the victims are concerned. Now, I'm I'm wondering, every state now has an identity theft statute which would enable victims to get a police report. Did you, what states, did you find out which states um, the victims were having a harder time getting police reports? In order to keep this as anonymous as possible, we did not ask them to sign their name to this. I see. It was done by uh, internet. Okay. We sent them to a certain website so that they would feel a little more Privacy. Open and answering the questions to us. So yeah, we're not yeah. able to go back and check that. Right. I'm just wondering because California now has really, you know, uh, been continued to be the leader. And I have found, and maybe you could tell me yourself, but I have found that it, it seems that California residents seem to be able to get a police report easier than other states. Have you found that as well? That is very true. The best states right now in the United States to be living if you're going to be a victim of identity theft, California, Texas, New York, uh, Illinois, all of these states have modified their laws to say that the law enforcement agency must take the report in the geographical area where the victim lives. doesn't say they have to investigate, but they must take the report and provide a copy to the individual victim. One of the worst states in the U.S. for this, unfortunately, is Pennsylvania, where the Pennsylvania State Police will take the report, but they will not give a report copy to anyone. (laughs) Unfortunately, the legislature in the state of Pennsylvania will have to enact something to make them change that particular policy. They will do a letter for the victim on state police letterhead, but 
that's not as effective as a police report. Right. And, and especially, yeah, I was going to say, and especially under the Fair Credit Reporting Act for the credit bureaus to respond, they want to see a real live report. So, yeah, that's a problem, huh? Yes, it is. We also see the problem, even if they're within the same state, if it happens in one part of Illinois and the criminals in another part of Illinois, the police argue, well, who's in charge of this case? Right. The people in Chicago or the people in the other part of Illinois. So victims are still getting bounced about. Yeah, and that, again, is California has uh, remedied some of that by saying not only... Uh, you know, can the victim get a police report in the city or location where he or she lives, but it can be prosecuted in either place, meaning the place where the victim lives or the place where the perpetrator committed the fraud. So we've gone further in California, of course, because you guys are here. That's why. Actually, (laughs) Actually, we've discovered that in the state of California, they've even expanded further than that. If the perpetrator lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. The victim lives in the Orange County area. And the crimes were partially committed in Sacramento and San Diego. Any one of those four jurisdictions can actually prosecute the case now. Exactly. Exactly. So that is great. They've, they've really given a little bit more leeway because the, the prosecutors now want to go where they have the most evidence. And if they have the most evidence in Sacramento and you know your your victims in uh, San Diego, and some stuff was done all over the state. They're gonna they're gonna want to go where the most evidence is. So that makes a lot of sense. Let's let's kind of go now to um, what has changed with victims in terms of their ability to really clear their negative records. That's always a challenge. I, I know, Linda, when you know back in 1996 when I was a victim for me to clean up the mess it took me and I clocked my hours and you know I can you can see how shy I am it took me about 500 hours to clean up all the mess um what are you what did you find in your survey now about people being able to clean up their their financial uh identity theft Well, unfortunately, we still see the credit reporting agencies putting inaccurate information back on credit reports, which most people don't understand is possibly due to the fact that a new credit issuer has put that information in there because the imposter is still active. Right. We've also seen that credit agencies refuse to remove the inaccurate information. That was 39%, and that fraud alerts were ignored about 30% of the time. Still, you know, people think if they put a fraud alert on their credit report that says, don't issue credit without calling me first, they think that they're going to get a call, but it doesn't work, does it? No, it doesn't. And what happens is victims give up. And I'm seeing in front of me right now on our chart, 22% of the victim finally gave up. Hmm. You know, remember Debix did a study um, at the end of last year that um, showed that, you know how they have the one call fraud alert where you're supposed to be able to, where you if you're a victim you could call one of the companies of the three major credit bureaus and those three uh, that one bureau will call the other two bureaus debix found that 40% of the time it didn't work that that because of their dis- different systems that when you you report to one it really didn't click with the other two they were not setting the alert on the other two are you finding that as well 
Yes, we do, which is why we always advise an individual victim to contact all three of them yourself. Don't depend on any other entity to do it. Do it yourself to make sure it gets placed in place properly. Exactly. It's like Murphy's Law. Don't, don't trust it. Call all three yourself. We also have a problem with criminal identity theft. And, you know, when we think of identity theft, most people think only of financial identity theft. And this is Jay's specialty area. When it comes to criminal identity theft, the victims throw up their hands and say, I don't know what to do. People say get a credit report, but that doesn't help me in a criminal case. Let's talk about that, Jay, about the steps that people should take. You know, you and I have worked together on, on several of these cases where there is criminal identity theft. So what are your suggestions? First, explain to my audience what it really is, what it entails, and then what they should do. Criminal identity theft is the definition or the description that we give to, I take your personal information I'm caught committing a crime. Instead of giving up my information to law enforcement, I give them yours. Mm-hmm. Now the entire legal process starts based on the fact that you committed this crime. I don't show up for court. They're looking for you. I disappear completely. Everything's going to come back and point to you. And you're going to have to go in and try to clear this. Things that we've had to do to assist victims in this arena are things like we had to have the law in California changed to encourage law enforcement whenever there's a question in a traffic stop as to what the identity of the individual is, put a thumbprint on the back of the citation. So if it turns out to be an imposter, that thumbprint can be used by the courts to clear the actual innocent victim. Right. The... Additional things we do is, depending on how the victim finds out about this, they're applying for a job and a background check has been done, and now this criminal record pops up. What we advise the victim to do, find out who generated the background check, who did that report, find out all that you can about it. Where did they say these crimes occurred? Because we're going to have to go back to that law enforcement agency, and we're going to have to ask them to compare your information with the information of the imposter that they were looking at. Right. It may be a photograph, it may be fingerprints. And and you as the victim are going to have to give your live fingerprints so that they can be compared. Yes, and quite frequently we have to be very careful about how we do this because you can't walk into the local police station and say, hi guys, please take my prints because this agency back here says that they want me under arrest. Right, so there's a warrant and I walk in and they throw me in jail. Exactly. We've actually gone to the point of talking with some law enforcement agencies, explaining the situation, ask them to work with the victim. They bring the victim in, they do the prints, they send them off, they send the victim on his way. The recipient law enforcement agency, and my favorite one right now happens to be Chicago PD, (laughs) their identity theft unit, when they get a request of this nature, or they're actually the records department and fingerprint comparison unit, will do that within a couple of hours. Great. And get back to you with a letter saying, yes, that's you, or no, that's not. So far to date, they haven't responded, yeah, that's you. Right. But the problem is, is some t- you have to get these criminal background checks changed, too, and that is a huge ordeal. Um, if you remember Ray Lorenzo, the, the famous case that we had to try and get all of those records changed, it took me hours and hours and hours. 
that the court records reflected that Ray Lorenzo was the criminal, even though the real guy was convicted. <laughs> so, so then you have to go to the court and get the court records and get the conviction records changed. That's not easy either. That's been virtually impossible in at least a dozen different states. In fact, in upstate New York just recently, a gentleman by the name of John Healy had to go through the entire process of an identity theft trial. Mr. Healy discovered that he was a victim of identity theft while he was, quote-unquote, his identity was being tried for murder of a police officer. Right, right. A gentleman by the name of Toussaint Davis had used his identity in a crime, given it up to law enforcement, actually was in the third week of his trial when somebody popped up and says, hey, wait a second, this isn't John Healy. Mm. And they didn't know how to straighten it out, so they convicted him on the murder trial under the name of, they con converted the trial to Tucson Davis, convicted him, but then they turned around and had to have a follow-up trial on the identity theft issue, convict him of the identity theft so that Mr. Healy can now appeal and try to get his name cleared. Right, and so what happens is, is that still the arrest records are going to show John Healy and uh, arrested for murder. Right and and, exactly. and and those public records not in California. California we don't sell the arrest records, but in many other states they sell the arrest records as well, and that becomes part of a background check. And in fact, that's what happened with uh, Scott Lewis. Remember, he had a, a an arrest for murder on his background check. So it it goes back to trying to get all of these governmental agencies from the courts to the office of court administration to you know the um, criminal justice uh, offices to correct the records. I know in New York when we had this problem with uh, Ray Lorenzo, the criminal justice system only looked at fingerprints, you know, the NCIC and the FBI databases. So on their records, Ray Lorenzo was, was you know, he was not a, a criminal. But Unfortunately, the court records use the Social Security number still. Jay, wh what can we do about that? Well, what we're trying to do in regards to that is we're, t we're talking to the courts in each state and asking them to redact the Social Security number except for court business. So the sale to these background investigation companies would not allow the, the Social Security number to be processed through. Additionally, what it's going to do, or what we're, what we're looking at now, is we're actually looking at the creation of a nationwide database maintained by the, gov by the federal government where each state, where they have a criminal identity theft case, the crime and the victim are both going to get put into this national system so that if somebody used my identity in Ohio for committing a crime, I get it cleared up. If I get stomped in Pennsylvania or Florida or some other place, it goes into the system. They go looking and say, wait a second, you're wanted on this crime over here. No, the system's going to come back and say, this is the real Jay Foley. This is not the person that they're looking for, so on and so forth. And, and, and so that it would be similar to the database that we have, the Attorney General database in California, where... Um, there is a database that if you're stopped, if you've been a victim of criminal identity theft, you can give a password and they can get in there and look at it and see that you are not the criminal. So it's similar to that? Exactly. In fact, it's 
being modeled on the Torlakson database that is used here in California. Great. The uh, the other other issue to it is there will be a method in which employers who do a background check on an individual will be able to go to the to the national database and compare the the individual to the national database to see whether or not he's telling the truth when he says that wasn't me. Right. Right. But it's going to be a tedious process trying to get this thing created. You know, one of the things we could do in the interim, Jay, and maybe you and and Linda could work on this too, is that we should really have a federal law that says that when you someone does a background check on you for employment or some other reason for promotion or for a governmental job, et cetera, that you automatically are given a copy of that background check. Because I've had people contact me, and I'm sure this has happened with you guys, that people don't know why they're not getting a job, but they, they have all the credentials and they don't understand it. And then they they do some kind of search, maybe at Choice Point, where they can get some background information about themselves. And they find out that, indeed, they have a criminal background that they didn't know about. So if, if every time you ha- allowed a, a background check, you gave a permissible purpose to get your background check, that you would get a copy automatically. That isn't the law right now. No, it's not. Um, the way the law is currently is phrased is, believe it or not, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, if they find something negative, they have to share with you what the negative is and what the source was. But they don't always do it because, for example, if, if you saw, um, if, if I wanted to work for you and Linda, and you did a background check. Well, you would be honest with me, but let's say it was some other company and they saw that I was arrested for murder, for example. Would they want to say, hey, you know, we don't want you because you were arrested for murder? They're probably going to say there was someone who was much more, um, you know, qualified than you, and that's why we are not going to hire you. <laughs> they, of course. The truth of the matter is they're not going to tell me, and that's what happened to many of the victims. So even though it's in the law, it's not happening. Understood. That's why we have to have that modified to be stronger so that it is a mandated process. Right. So let's do it. Okay. And of let's course, we didn't study corporate tendencies here as far as, you know, how they're following the rules about protecting their identities and protecting our identities as well. Right. But we've seen the consequences of it through our victims. You know, getting back to the victims, um, what is the financial impact on families when a family member commits ID theft? Well, I can go back to a couple things here. In terms of hours, the average victim spent 97 hours repairing the damage done by identity theft to an existing account that was used or taken over by a thief. Okay, so that's when you have an existing account. 144,000 hours. Wow. That's for for when someone takes over your total identity and uses your social. Right. Now, in terms of new accounts that were opened... That's 231 hours. Right. Now, that's a li- that has increased a little bit from, from 2003? It's or? actually come down a little bit. So my hope is that the FACTA Act has had some impact as far as the person's ability to get that application transaction records and take advantage of that. But that has also increased the costs because now they've got a lot more photocopying and postage that they are incurring. Right, and long-distance calls and 
all sorts of stuff. What about the fina- uh, the emotional impact? I know you've done studies of that, and we know how emotionally upsetting it could be. Both of us have lived it. So yeah. what did you find? Has that changed at all? No, and fortunately it has not. And one of the contributing factors, of course, is the secondary wounding, where people are finding their insurance has gone up, they're unable to get credit, um, they have found that their insurance has been canceled right? because they don't have a good credit score or someone has committed criminal identity theft in their name. But in terms of the emotional impact, unfortunately, the American Psychiatric Association is no longer calling this post-traumatic stress disorder, but anxiety disorder. Interesting. They've because they're saying it continues, it. huh? It continues, it continues. as anxi- anxiety. Yeah. Um, Some of the examples that I can give you, and let me pull that chart in front of me very quickly here, is, and some of them were rather horrific as you read through it and you go, oh my goodness, this is how they're really feeling. Um, They're betrayed. They feel powerless. Um, There's a sense of loss of power, of innocence. Uh, They feel betrayed by unsupportive family members and friends. Um, And this continues on through a sense of grieving, loss of sense of humor, overwhelming sadness, and inability to concentrate, Um, sleep disturbances, a sense of being an outcast, of shame and embarrassment. 28% initially felt shame or embarrassment. Even though it's not their fault. Even though it's not their fault, but you see, we see those top ten lists of this is what you should do to prevent being a victim of identity theft. Right, right. And we've created a guilt-ridden society, very similar to what we created with rape and with other types of personal trauma. And you know that has driven you and Jay and I and Beth Givens and everybody crazy about blaming the victim when so much of this is totally beyond the control of the victim. Absolutely. And then some of the more severe areas are... A feeling 20% originally felt captive, Mm. 8% suicidal, 69% frustration, 41% exhaustion, 34% initially felt and long-term as well. They want to give up. They're sick of being suspect or fighting the system. Right. And then 11% of them going up to 14% on a long-term basis. I've lost everything and I can't continue. Thank God for you guys, because once once they get to the Identity Theft Resource Center, they're going to get you and Jay and others who are working with you to really have that support that they need so that they don't have to feel so alone and abandoned and suicidal. I, you know, it's, uh, it, I've talked to many people myself, and I know what it feels like, and I know how, how much better they feel after they speak with both of you or other people at, at the Identity Theft Resource Center. Let me go back and, and ask a question of Jay. You know, Jay, we were talking about criminal identity theft, but let's talk about the other forms of, of identity theft, like that, that things that don't appear in your credit report, like uh, disability payments, when people get disability in your name, or they um, get workers' compensation, or VA benefits, or health benefits, or Medicare. What about that? That doesn't show up on a credit report. 
No, it doesn't. And we are actually classifying that now as governmental identity theft. It involves a government agency. It involves all sorts of bureaucratic nightmares trying to straighten it out. And unfortunately, in some cases, these nightmares can have a, a devastating effect on the individual. You are retired. You are living on your Social Security. You are living on a very fixed income. And suddenly the government cuts it off because, according to them, you now have a full-paying job in a whole other place in the United States because somebody's working under your Social Security number. Or, in the case of one woman that we're aware of down in Texas, she was actually convicted of uh, welfare fraud and sent to prison. Oh, goodness. The imposter had gone around to four different counties, used her information, filed for welfare in each one of those four counties while the victim was working in a fifth county. Oh, horrible, horrible. Unfortunately, in her case, she got some very bad advice going into the, going into the whole situation, and she ended up going to prison in the state of Texas for four years. Oh, my gosh. What finally got her out and free was a year after she was confined, she magically applied for welfare in a fifth, sta- or fifth <laughs> county. Oh, good. And the attorney general goes in and goes, wait a second, how can you be applying for welfare if you are in custody? <laughs> and she goes, that's what I've been trying to say to you all along. My goodness. So did she, she got an attorney to get her out, or what did she have to do? Did, did they... The attorney general stepped in and expedited her release and the overturn of the conviction. Oh, gosh, that is wonderful. You know, we've had things that haven't been that bad, but like the gentleman who applied for workers' comp after he was injured and found out that someone else had used his social to get the workers' comp in his name, you know, or the same thing with disability payments. So, you know, how can people find out about this? I mean... Unfortunately, the only way to really detect it is to check with Social Security and see what kind of benefit payments are being made on your behalf. Yeah, but you won't see workers' comp payments. You won't see workers' comp there. The only place that you would see workers' comp payments would possibly be through the Internal Revenue Service, and they are not highly inclined to give you that information. Right, right. So it's, it's pretty much of once you discover it, this is what you're going to need to do, and you're going to need to follow some very specific steps to avoid getting trapped someplace that you really don't want to be. You know, we're, we're telling people, and I'm sure you are too, that it, it's really important to do your own background check and see what is appearing on there. And um, I know that ChoicePoint now has, you know, through FACTA, you can get certain uh, records for free, just like you get your credit Bureau records for free at annualcreditreport.com. But they can go to choice, is it choicetrust.com, right? Choicetrust.com. Yeah, and they can get their uh, insurance report, their work-related history, and and other information. I think ChoicePoint now also allows people to get a free uh, public record report. What about medical identity theft? That's not governmental, and it's not, and it doesn't appear on your credit report until it goes into collections. What about that one, Jay? Well, the medical identity theft becomes uh, a problem because, as you said, you don't find out about it until it's in collections. And then you've got to figure out, A, what are they talking about? Who actually started this? 
And when you call up the collection agency, their mantra is pay us the money. That's all they want. Right. They are not concerned about telling you what this is about. And if you tell them, well, this wasn't me, then they fall back to that tried and true excuse. Well, in that case, I don't need to talk to you about this. Right. I have to protect the privacy of the person who did this. They're still using that very worn-out old excuse for not communicating. So when you notice, receive a notice from the collection agency about this, believe it or not, you're going to have to go down, file a police report, get a copy of that report, send a copy of the report to the collection agency with a demand. You now tell me what this is all about because you are telling me that I'm responsible for this debt. They use my information. You're telling me I'm a victim of identity theft. I'm showing you that I filed a police report under Section 609E of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. It's time for you to produce a copy of the application and the transaction history for this. Right. Show me where it came from. You know, it's interesting. I was looking at our survey. We had been totaling some things today. 76% of victims found out about identity theft through an adverse action. Right. They were denied credit. They were notified by law enforcement. Um, Got a letter from some agency, right? Correct. Or they found out about a warrant for their arrest or the problems with the um, welfare or something like that. That means only 22% found out during a proactive measure taken by business, such as a business calling to say, we're seeing a change of address. Have you changed your address? Only 10% of victims noticed unusual activity on their credit reports. So we know people are still not looking at their credit reports as well as they should be. Right. And again, and they, can. Yeah. And they need to know, again, annualcreditreport.com. They can get it for free from each of the credit bureaus. Getting back to this medical identity theft, there's another issue, though, that's scary that maybe you guys can brainstorm with me. Um when someone has committed medical identity theft and has gotten an operation using your name and identifier or your health insurance, all of a sudden you're going to have on your medical record some kind of disease or procedure or cancer or whatever or HIV that you don't have. Now, this Actually, is we saw an interesting case. In fact, it's the second time we've heard about this where a woman was had a knock on the door, and the Child Protective Services had come to take her children. There was a record in the hospital that she'd just given birth to a drug-addicted child. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and abandoned that child. Uh. Now, this woman had not had any children for the last two years. She had to go through a physical exam to prove that she'd not had, just had birth. Her children, in the meantime, were hysterical in Child Protective Services. Uh. It took them two days to return the children back to her. She'd gone to the same hospital, had something else done there several months earlier. Someone had gotten her information and had used it and abandoned this drug-addicted child. Oh, my goodness. So there we go. Access to records. You know, this hospital is absolutely the worst place because they've got all sorts of information on you. Now, luckily, your Social Security number is not your health care number, but they still ask for it. They still ask for your Social Security number. You know, I mean, Lloyd had to go into the hospital real quick when he fell uh, a couple weeks ago. And, of course, they were asking for the Social Security number. And I said, you don't need it. That isn't the number for his uh, Blue Shield. But they used the medical identity health insurance number instead. So it still goes on, it your, still fi- goes. on your file. Right. 
So, you know, one of the things that people can do is go to MIB.com, isn't that it, Medical Information Bureau, to find out if there's anything on their insurance. But how else are they going to find out about this? They might be denied insurance. They might even be denied a loan if somebody thinks they have cancer. Again, it's going to be an adverse way you're going to find out about it unless you proactively keep having, if you see the same doctor over and over again, and I'm part of an HMO, they have continued medical records, and my doctor is very good about saying, hey, I see that you saw such and such doctor, you know, did you see them, what did they say, etc." So continued medical care with the same providers who are seeing what's going on in other areas is of help. Right, but what if you move? And you get new doctors, or what if you change carriers, or what if you have to go to various specialists? It seems that we should be able, just like a credit report, we should really be able to see our total medical history so that we can see if there's any errors. I remember that we had heard from people who found out that there was errors on their medical record and they couldn't get uh, disability insurance. Mari, what you're suggesting here sounds very reasonable and very logical. One terribly small flaw about that. Your entire medical history is split up over so many different doctors, hospitals, locations, that it would be impossible to consolidate. Well, that's what they're trying to do with the electronic records. That's that's right now being proposed in Congress, that we have medical records that are electronic and they're that they're all in a profile so that, for example, if we experience the fires, the devastating fires like we have in California, and everything in those $15,000 15, homes were lost, that people would be able to access a central database for all their prescriptions, for all their medical records. That all came up after Katrina. So that is, you know, they're trying to do these digital records. And, it and, seemed how, and how far back will they go? For somebody who's like you, who's only 23 or 24 <laughs> yeah, years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah, I love you, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you only look like you're 23 or 24 <laughs> years old. Going back a number of years won't be so difficult, but for somebody who's like me in, oh, in yeah. their mid-50s, there are record, medical records on me that I'm sure that are not available to anybody now. They're in a dusty corner someplace so far back in a hospital that they even predate my social security number. Jay, you know, I'm really worried about this Internet now that anybody can put anything, any database together and sell and put together a profile. I'll bet you, I'll bet you that somewhere somebody is putting together profiles of our medical histories, um, that they're, they're changing it from, you know, paper uh, to electronic files, and that's what they're doing, and I bet you we're going to have complete dossiers on us. Maybe they won't go back as, as old as we are, but they surely are going to be uh, created from recent years, and our children and children's children are going to be in data in electronic files, and I bet you they're going to be consolidated. Oh, I'm sure that they will eventually, and my biggest concern here is simply this. Mari, your blood type is A, but somebody uses your record in Iowa, and it gets added into your electronic file, and their blood type was B. Exactly. And you come in, and then, and the, the next time you're in for a medical procedure, say an emergency procedure, somebody flips up the electronic chart, and boom, it says, oh, type B. Right. And they start slapping that kind of blood into you, and you have an anaphylactic reaction, and suddenly 
the entire world is deprived of Mari, and yep. that's not right. That's exactly the reason why that this is this is all pretty scary stuff, you know, about these electronic files where everybody would be dependent on them, and the accuracy of all of these databases are suspect, right? I mean, if you look at the credit reports, and we know how many errors there are, I think the United States Public Interest Research Group found that, you know, 70% of credit reports had have errors. And if we think about these medical records, how many medical records have errors? I mean, you guys have talked to people. I have talked to victims who have found out that they had um, mental health records when they'd never even been to a psychologist or psychiatrist in their lives. The thing that scares me the most about these records yeah. is not, not necessarily the inaccuracies, but in every case, when we have talked to hospitals, we have talked to doctors, we've talked to the American Medical Association, why can we not have a situation where somebody goes in and uses your identity, gets treated, boom? Why can we not have that section of the record designated as a Jane Doe and set aside? Why does it have to still remain as part as yours? The medical community refuses to segregate or Delete. remove yeah, yeah. Or, or redact your name from anything where it's been placed. So basically, they're saying we must keep this. And their argument is, well, what if the imposter comes back for treatment again? Right, right. Well, who would I rather protect, the individual whose identity was truly used and is a victim of this crime? Right. Or the imposter who, if they get the wrong type of blood because they're stealing somebody's identity, I'm not that sympathetic. Right. And and if, if they suddenly look like they have HIV or that they're a drug addict and they can't get a job, that's clearly not fair if there is some need to, to look at their medical record in order to get a job. You know, it's and the just, question is, who's going to get to see these medical records? There's right. a whole issue of privacy here. Exactly. And we've seen too many breaches where those medical in, that medical information has been seen by the wrong people. Especially if the employer is, is self-insured, when they've got that, that blending where they have access to those records, there could be a, a true problem when someone has, a, maybe they have some kind of an addiction or something is, is showing up, or, or they don't have it, and some uh, imposter created that for them. So I think there's so much to do with identity theft when it's just, it's so easy now with these uh, databases that are so inaccurate. Let's talk a little bit now about um, the breaches. You've been following these public breaches since 2005, like the, um, when, when the original uh, major public breach came out with ChoicePoint. Yes. What have you been finding? What, what, have, what have some of the statistics that you have? Well, we're close to... Um Almost 800 breaches since 2005 now. Um, for this year alone, we're, um, as of the beginning of this last week, it was 339 breaches with nearly 77.7 million records affected. Right. The highest category as far as breach um, threat would be educational at 27.7%. Right. All the business. universities, and here we're sitting the on the campus of the University of California, which was yep. one of them that's been, yeah, okay. <laughs> Government and military, almost 26%. Business, 25%. 
medical and health care, we were just talking about that, yeah. 15% of all the breaches were medical and health care. And at the very bottom of the pack, the financial community, banking, credit, and financial, with only 6.5%. I think they, you know, because of Gramm-Leach-Bliley and all of the compliance issues, I think that they are better, you know. I think that they are a little bit more astute about protecting, but then you've got things like, you know, TJ Maxx and a lot of the retailers that, uh, you know. And and I I think the fact that we have so many tiny, tiny um, electronic devices that, that can store billions of data on them you know anything from the laptop to the little tiny uh, things that you carry on on your keychain you know yeah the little usb flash drives i mean i carry one of those i never put anything on there that is uh confidential but if i put a presentation on there that's you know that's easy to carry so so what what are your thoughts? I mean, I've I get phone calls from people who have had breaches, but they don't do it pub. They don't have to say it publicly because all they have to do is write a letter. So what are you thinking, Linda and, and Jay? What should what what should be done about this? Well, companies that do have breaches do have to go should go public as far as notifying the affected population. The whole question is, what do you say in that breach letter? or in the notification letter. And it's giving accurate information so that you don't just say, your personal information was stolen. Well, what part of it? I don't feel it's appropriate if it's just a Social Security number. Tell them that so they don't go closing all of their credit cards unnecessarily. Right, right. If it's only one credit card, say that so that they're not sitting there all going and saying, oh, I've got to put fraud alerts on everything because I'm worried about my Social Security number. Oh, right. Or they close every account that they have, and they have no access to credit. Correct. So, Unfor- yeah, Unfortunately, from the breaches last year, we studied a large number of the breach letters that were sent out, and out of 150 that we studied, only two of them met a standard that we considered as comprehensive and intelligent to give the individuals that receive those letters clear instructions as to how to proceed. It's it's really kind of scary, the fumbling that's going on when a, when a breach occurs and the various folks are trying to put out information, how much they're actually missing and putting out improperly. We are seeing an increase in the number of companies that are reporting breaches, but I don't know that that reflects that there are more breaches occurring. I think that it, we also have to take in consideration that many states have laws requiring breach notification now, and that companies, even if they're not required to, are going public. And they're doing it because they are trying to retain consumer trust. They're trying to be upfront with their employees and their, consu- and their customers and letting them know what's going on. So it's hard to judge, are there more breaches, are there less breaches, and we're just hearing about them now? I don't know. Linda and Jay, we, we only have a couple of minutes left, Lloyd's telling me, but what do you think, you know, should happen since the FACT Act, uh, which was supposed to decrease identity theft, we've seen from, for example, the Gartner study that it has actually increased. So what needs to be done to actually decrease or eliminate identity theft? More corporate responsibility 
as far as information handling, uh-huh. I think, is one of our key areas. Um, they have to understand they're holding the majority of information. We looked at our customer behavior and consumer behavior. We're seeing good consumer behavior patterns, at least that they're expressing to us, whether they're actually practicing them or not. I'm not following them home, so I don't know. But they are aware of them, and they are saying that they practice them. But in terms of corporate America, they have to realize whatever information they collect, they are responsible for and possibly liable for. They need to assess, do I need that information or can I not request it and still accomplish my needs? Jay, you want to go ahead? I think you're doing quite well. Yep, and I think, and Lloyd is saying it's time. So if we can hold the companies accountable to safeguard our information and authenticate who we really are, I think we're going to be able to get together and uh, make some changes in identity theft. You guys are wonderful. I'm going to say your website again, idtheftcenter.org. You must go there. I donate. I suggest that everybody go and donate your time, energy, and money to this worthwhile organization. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and keep up the great work. Thank you, Maury. Thank you, Mari, and have a good afternoon. You too. Good evening. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host of Privacy Piracy. Please join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. Wednesdays right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Thank you, and thank you, Lloyd. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 